The Bazaar is a podcast that deals with mature subject matter that some listeners may find offensive or upsetting. The Bazaar is not recommended for any listeners under 18 years of age. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome to The Bazaar. to the bazaar. I am your host, Alicia Grek, but you know that if you're a seasoned listener, which I'm sure most of you are. If you're new, welcome to the party. Hey, I hope you like weird shit because that's all this podcast really is. If not, um, wow, I'm super sorry you were in the wrong place at maybe the right time. Maybe you're a convert. Maybe you want to start liking weird shit during quarantine. All right, then I'm your girl. Today we are covering a story that is truly bizarre. I mean, everything we cover is bizarre. That's the whole point of the podcast. But this one really, really makes my skin crawl. Information for today's episode comes from Wikipedia, of course, BuzzFeed, and The Independent. This week, we are talking about Bella in the Witch Elm. On April 18th in 1943, four teenage boys were walking through the Hagley Woods in England. The forest was bordering the grounds of the Hagley Hall estate, which just sounds like super haunted if you ask me. Anyways, it belonged to this guy, Lord Cobham, which also sounds like he could eventually become a ghost. (laughs) The four boys, Bob Hart, Tom Willits, Fred Payne, and Bob Farmer, were trespassing on his land, looking for some excitement to get their minds off of the nightly German bombing raids, which were happening over their hometown in Birmingham. They had their dogs with them, and they were supposed to supplement their family's meager meat ration with a poached rabbit or two. After a while, Bob Farmer spotted a witch elm, which is named for its weird appearance, and he decided to climb it, hoping to find a bird's nest inside. He climbed up and peeked into the hollow trunk. A glimmer of white convinced him that he had actually hit the jackpot and found a bird's eggs. However, what he grabbed inside was far worse. Bob found a human skull that night, with clumps of hair and crooked teeth protruding from it. The boys fled from the woods, understandably, like I would be screaming and running if I found that, and they promised each other to never tell a single soul about what they'd found that night, out of fear of getting into trouble for trying to poach off of someone else's land and just generally trespassing onto someone else's land. But despite this promise, the seriousness of their find weighed heavily on 17-year-old Tom Willits. Shortly after he returned home, he told his parents about what he and his friends had found in the Hagley Woods, and they alerted the police. Soon after, the tree was sectioned off as a crime scene. Inside where the skull was found, police also found skeleton remains of a woman. Her hand was missing, and the bones of which they found were scattered around the tree. Along with her body, they also found a cheap imitation gold ring and a size 5.5 pair of shoes, which were also a short distance away. Scraps of clothing hung from the bones, and a piece of taffeta fabric was actually stuffed inside the mouth of the skull, indicating that she had been suffocated. The medical examiner, Professor James Webster, concluded that the woman was around 35 years old, had irregular teeth in her upper jaw, had light brown hair, and was just 5 feet tall. He also determined that the woman had given birth to a child in her lifetime and had estimated that she'd been dead for around 18 months. 
Six months later, when the case went cold, strange graffiti appeared across the area asking, who put Bella in the witch elm? Somebody knew and someone was baiting the police. Police honed their search to identify the graffiti artist and followed the trail of anyone from the area known as Bella, but neither line of inquiry was actually successful. The search of national dental records also proved fruitless. The woman in the witch elm apparently had come from nowhere and was missed by no one at all. In 1944, a possible victim was reported to the police by a Birmingham sex worker. In the report, she stated that another sex worker called Bella, who worked on Hagley Road, had disappeared about three years previously. The name Bella, or Lou Bella, suggested that the graffiti artist was probably aware of the identity of the victim or of the killer, which puts an interesting spin on things. I mean, sex workers were not treated fairly then, and by no means are they treated fairly now, but there also could have been a second sex worker or somebody else who witnessed the murder that is then putting this graffiti out there. A second possibility came from a statement made to police in 1953 by Una Mossop, in which she said that her ex-husband Jack had confessed to family members that he and a Dutchman called Van Ralt had put the woman in the tree. Mossop and Van Ralt met for a drink at the Littleton Arms, a pub in Hagley. Later that night, Mossop said that the woman became drunk and passed out while they were driving. The men then put her in a hollow tree in the woods in hopes that she would, in the morning, wake up and be frightened to seeing the error of her ways. But that she never did wake up. But that person was Bella. Jack Mossop was confined to a mental hospital because he had recurring dreams of a woman staring out at him from a tree. He later died in hospital before the body of the witch elm was actually found. The likelihood of this being correct is questioned because Una Mossop did not come forward with this information until 10 years after Jack's death. It's definitely problematic. Two years passed. The case attracted the attention of anthropologist Professor Margaret Murray, who clouded the investigation by citing a disturbing occult ceremony known as the Hand of Glory, theorizing that the scattered hand bones indicated a ritualistic murder. Everybody always blames the Wiccans, or the Satanists. I, pr I, I feel like they're not as exciting as, as we think they are sensationalized to be. I don't know, that just might be my opinion. After this theory was made public, the press feasted on it to the latest detail, particularly when the body of a local man, Charles Walton, was found in the nearby village of Lower Quinton, pinned to the ground with a pitchfork. It's still contested to this day whether or not that crime is actually related to this one. Murray connected both of these cases, and Scotland Yard appeared to take the theory seriously, to the further delight of the press, which just honestly made things worse. By the early 1950s, talk of witchcraft had taken hold of popular imagination. Then in 1953, a woman calling herself Anna contacted the Wolverhampton Express and the Star claiming to have known Bella's killers personally. She met the police in secret, but details of her story were drip-fed to the public by a local columnist. Anna sent the case in a totally new direction, espionage. She claimed that Bella had been murdered by a German spy ring involving a British officer, a Dutchman, and a music hall artist. In terms of the area, this theory was actually highly plausible. 
there were many factories in the area that made it a prime target for Nazi intelligence gathering designed to choreograph the Birmingham Blitz. The public embraced the link between the Hagley Woods murder and espionage with absolute gusto. Is this the appropriate time to use the word gusto? I'm going to use it. It seems like the right mood. Police then shifted their investigation, dismissing the talk of the occult, and concluded that the finger bones had been scattered by animals and not a mysterious satanic coven. Although, as with all good stories, despite Anna's leads, the investigation began to collect dust on a shelf somewhere. In 1968, writer Donald McCormick revisited both murders in his book Murder by Witchcraft. In this book, he asserted that Bella had actually been a Nazi spy, and also an occultist, named Clara Bella, a woman well known to several senior Nazis, recruited by the Abwire and given the codename Clara. He claimed to have gained access to records which indicated that she had parachuted into the West Midlands in 1941, but subsequently failed to make radio contact and then disappeared. Furthermore, at least one piece of the contemporary graffiti he claimed referred to not Bella, but to Clarabella. A bold statement, but really it did nothing to further the investigation, and actually a lot of his claims were kind of pushed aside. Thirty years later, the mystery endured despite continuing media interest, including The Independent, which revisited the story in 1999. But the official closure of the West Mercia police investigation and the publication of the case file has allowed it to be re-examined, and a startling conclusion presents itself. The police's final review acknowledges that while there could be some merit in a DNA investigation, they have been unable to ascertain where Bella was actually laid to rest. But they overlooked the fact that after the post-mortem, Bella's remains were not buried by the local constabulary, but were in fact passed to one of Professor Webster's colleagues at the University of Birmingham for more unofficial tests. The police were looking for Bella in the wrong cemetery. McCormick's theory may lack hard evidence, but in the 1960s there were only limited lines of inquiry made available. So maybe if this author had more resources, he actually might have been able to find something interesting. He didn't have access to MI5 files, which detail the interrogation of a Czech-born Gestapo agent named Joseph Jacobs, arrested by the Home Guard after parachuting into Cambridgeshire on January of 1941. His declassified file at the National Archives contains a photograph carried by Jacobs at the time of his arrest which throws McCormick's claims into actual relief. In this photograph was a woman. The woman was named by Jacobs as a cabaret singer and German movie actress, Clara Bolaire. Jacobs told his interrogators that Clara was his lover and that they had first met in Hamburg, where she had been singing at Café Dreyer with the Et Orchestra. She was connected with senior Nazis and had been recruited as a secret agent. She was due to parachute into the Midlands after Jacob had established radio contact, but he claimed that since he had been captured before he could send word, this was now unlikely to happen. MI5 learned that Bolaire had been born in Stuttgart in 1906, making her the perfect age, 35. She was indeed a cabaret artist, in fact she spent two years working in the music halls of the West Midlands before the war and was said to speak English with a Birmingham accent. 
it isn't difficult to see how the name Clara Bolaire might have been more easily remembered as Clarabella by English music hall audiences, and Anna would later allege a connection between Bella, espionage, and music hall in her letter to the articleist in 1953. Meaning that Anna's theory and McCormick's theory actually are kind of related in a way. I'm still not really sure how the whole occultist thing comes into it, but I have heard sort of through other podcasts and things that I've read that there were certain members of the Nazi party that were actually really into occult. I'm not sure. Maybe somebody else look that up and let me know if I'm wrong or if I'm right. One thing I can't get over is that these three people, an author, this person who went under the pseudonym Anna, and this Nazi spy, they don't know each other, at least not officially, and yet the timings of each of their stories seem to line up to the spring of 1941. Curiously, there appears to be no gramophone recordings, live performances, or movie appearances bearing her name, though, after this date. So, therefore, she could have died if there is no other sources crediting her work. Her singing career seemed to have come to an abrupt end. McCormick's agent, Clara, parachuted into the West Midlands in early 1941 and subsequently failed to make radio contact, and Jacobs failed to convince MI5 that he could be reliably termed. In any case, MI5 noted in a memo that news of his capture was no secret, on account of the inability of the home guard to keep their mouths shut, end quote. On the 15th of August in 1941, he was executed by firing squad, the last man to be put to death at the Tower of London, which we will have to talk about at some point because there's totally a factor that that place is haunted. So what do we got? Let's, let's take stock of what we know. We know that there was a mysterious woman found in a tree in the middle of the Hagley Woods. We still don't know how she got there, but we do know she may have been a spy named Clarabella or Clara Boulaire, Valerie, Barlet. If there's anything I can promise of this podcast, there will be at least five pronunciation errors. Like, that's my bizarre guarantee to you. Even if she was a spy, we still don't know who killed her or how she got in that tree. And we also have no idea where her remains are. To this day, no one's been able to locate them anywhere, which I think is also very suspicious. In popular culture, the story of Bella has come out in novels, specifically The Witch Elm, written by Tana French, a London doom metal band called Green Lung, immortalized the story on their debut album, Woodland Rites, in the song The Ritual Tree. The case was also the topic of the fourth episode of season six of the web series BuzzFeed Unsolved. The identity of Bella was also explored in a poetry collection, Bella, by Nellie Cole. Unless the mortal remains of the woman found in the Hagley Woods can be located, the fate of Jacob's lover, Clara, may prove to be as enduring a mystery as the question of who put Bella in the witch elm in the first place. Strange theories of German spies and witchcraft rituals keep this local legend alive to today. The strange and sinister tale of Bella still captivates armchair detectives everywhere. I mean, I know it captivates me, I'm still so confused. Despite a lengthy police investigation and a plethora of plausible and not-so-plausible theories, the identity of the woman nicknamed Bella and that of her killer remain unsolved. Ooh, that's spooky. I mean, like, 
ugh, I think most things that I cover in this podcast are spooky, but that's like really spooky. <laughs> Anyways, I'm probably going to have a nightmare tonight about a woman peeking out at me from a tree. So if anyone else has that problem, let's swap nightmares stories. I don't know. Thank you so much for stopping by this week's episode of The Bazaar. I hope that you enjoyed it. I know that I really enjoy putting this stuff together. Episodes of The Bazaar come out every Friday wherever you listen. Stitcher, Google Podcasts, we are even on Spotify. So look us up, turn on that notification bell, and make sure you're kept up to date with the latest episode. There are over 30 episodes of The Bazaar for you to sit back and enjoy this quarantine season. I hope you are all staying safe, staying healthy. Peace out, nerds.